everybody, welcome back to Conduct Detrimental Podcast. This is your host, Dan Worley. As always, I'm joined by our other host, the slightly under the weather, but still with us, Daniel Wallach. Dan, what's happening? Uh, good evening or good afternoon, Dan, depending on when this is actually being broadcast. How are you? Our first annual NFL Draft special podcast. Uh, we've got to make a tradition out of this. It's a real exciting time of the year. And there are some legal angles uh, connected to the NFL draft. And we're going to get into those today. But how are you otherwise? I'm great. I'm very good. We're, we're just like the, the legal side of Mel Kuyper and Todd McShay here, um, here to break down all of the draft angles. And, and on that point, we actually came up with somewhat of our own quote-unquote big board like, like Mel has. But uh, you know, these eight players all have sort of issues um, – surrounding them that that have legal ties we'll say because not all of them are necessarily lawsuits or criminal charges they're just some sort of quasi-legal issues around but uh we'll get to that as we go um and and we also kind of want to touch on as we go some of the bigger impact that these these issues have on on the draft process um and the players that will be drafted and as you guys know we're recording this right now on a late on a wednesday night um, so you're probably not listening to it till till Thursday, but Thursday is the opening night of the draft, the first round, and then the, then the second and third rounds on Friday, and then the rest of it on Saturday. So um, it's going to be a big three-day spec, uh, spec, spectacle, there it is, um, in Philadelphia this year for the first time. And, um, you know, having uh, lived in Chicago when the draft was there, uh, it is quite an event, and the NFL has really... Um, you know, gone from having this be just a, a minor thing to to a huge, massive event and part of their year, and there's a, there's a huge draw to it. So, uh, you know, without further ado, um, let's get right to um, the content. And uh, Dan, I'm going to kick it over to you first. And this is, you know, the case that's been around now for um, quite a while. Probably the the most high profile, uh, you know, legal case involving the draft and that is none other than joe mixon yeah number one on our red flag draft board uh joe mixon by most accounts is a first round uh you know talent he's tailback at a university of oklahoma who um you know it was the collegiate version of ray rice and that he was caught on a videotape uh you know punching knocking a woman out cold a fellow college student uh amelia uh, molitor and conveniently, Joe uh, settled his civil case with Ms. Molitor last week, presumably for a significant payout because they issued a joint statement together in which they both expressed regret over their actions. But is that going to be enough to save Joe Mixon? Is he going to be hearing his name called on either Thursday, round one, Friday, round two, round three, or is he going to have to wait until Saturday? I think talent trumps all. And in a year where the running back position is now back in vogue in the NFL draft, I think Joe is going to hear his name called in the first uh, three or four rounds of the NFL draft. But the NFL hasn't done him any favors. He wasn't invited to the combine. Uh, And then there are all these leaks and innuendos about how, how well he may have interviewed. So I think this is going to be an interesting test case because on talent alone, uh, you know, Joe Mixon should last no longer than the second round. And I, I, I believe somebody's going to take him inside, uh, I won't even say four rounds. I think he's not going to go past the third round. But with some teams, he's completely off the board. And, uh, you know, it's just another one of these years where players uh, slip a lot further than they need to. And, his, and in his case, it's the videotape, not necessarily the alleged assault itself, because he doesn't stand alone here. There are a number of other uh, draft draftable players this year and in years past who have heard their name called, but none of them have had the videotape evidence that is going to send Joe Mixon rocketing down the draft board. Yeah, it's wild. I mean, I've heard, you know, and I'm, I'm an unabashed NFL draft fan. I'm a fan of the mock draft. I listen to NFL draft podcasts even, so I'm, I'm in this stuff. Um, and, and I've heard the draft Knicks say that a lot of people are out there on the record saying that they think he's the best running back in this draft, better than Leonard Fournette, Christian McCaffrey, Delvin Cook, um, some of these other very talented backs. Um, and so he's going to be a fascinating cast case on draft day. And I think... Would thing- you take him? Would you draft him? If you, were, if you were running the draft for a team that was in need of a running back, would you take him? And how would you sell it to your fan base? I No. 
I wouldn't take him. I mean, I don't think, uh, from what I've gathered in the case, I don't think his actions are excusable. Not to say that he doesn't deserve a second chance, but it just wouldn't be how I would want to run an organization. Um, you know, I think, and, and I was just going to kind of touch on this point, I, I've heard this argument a lot where he's, um, I've heard that he's pretty much a lock to go in the second round. And the reasoning behind that is, uh, really the timing of the draft and how the draft is laid out, right? So the team on the first night on Thursday gets to take their player. He's, the, he's sort of the headliner of the draft. He's going to be in front of the media. Um, all that news is going to run on Friday, right? And then on Friday night, the second and the third rounds happen. And, um, you know, that's when news and media kind of slows down and it's over the weekend, and they can kind of slide him in, not as the headliner. And this is purely on a PR side, not nothing to do with his talent. But if a team does come up to the first round and take him, it's going to be a massive story. It's going to be all over the headlines. They're going to have to answer a ton of tough questions. Um, and so I think that if a team likes him, they may consider trying to take him in the second round rather than the first for those reasons. Um, you know, I think another thing with Mixon that's really fascinating is yeah. – um, the timing of the incident actually is working in his favor. So, um, you know, compared to some of these other players we're going to talk about today, basically everything related to Mixon now the civil case is, fought, is settled, excuse me, is resolved at this point because the incident took place years ago. Um, and it obviously has the video attached to it. And and based on the video, it seems like maybe the the worst case, if you were ranking them, out of all of these, and you can't really rank them, but that's just, you know, based on what we saw, and maybe the most difficult case to explain to fans, I would say. Um, but since it's resolved, teams are able to do their homework. They're able to completely know what happened. There's nothing else that's going to come down the line unless, um, you know, the NFL is going to try to suspend him, which uh, I don't think that they have grounds to do, although who knows. Um, and so I think the timing of his incident being a few years ago is working to his advantage. Yeah. I mean, I, I think he's in a more advantageous position than some of the players who've had these uh, positive, uh, you know, drug tests for, you know, diluted drug samples that are already, uh, you know, in the program by virtue of their, uh, by virtue of their positive test. Uh, nothing that Joe Mixon has done previously will subject him to any immediate discipline from the NFL. So the question, if I was running a draft, the question I'd be asking isn't so much, is, is he going to be healthy enough to remain in the lineup? But is he somebody that can remain on the roster for disciplinary uh, for disciplinary purposes? And I think based on his uh, recent um, actions and attempt to toe the line and explain his conduct, I think this is a player who'd probably be more apt uh, to, to, to walk the straight and narrow because this is not a drug issue. This is not a substance abuse issue. As terrible as domestic violence is, if a team believes that Joe Mixon is, is not likely to ever have a repeat offense like this, then it becomes a PR issue and not a football eligibility issue. And I think the team, one of the teams to look for in possibly drafting him are teams that have already had to make this explanation to their fan base, like the Kansas City Chiefs. They've walked down this path a year ago with their fifth-round draft choice that had a similar red flag issue. And I think a team that has already taken a PR hit like this can afford to take another one because they've, uh, they've successfully navigated this terrain. A team like the Giants? Probably not. A team like the Patriots or the Baltimore Ravens? No and no. But yeah, I was thinking. 32, the 32 teams in the National Football League, and everyone wants to get a steal. And I think if Joe Mixon somehow makes it through the first two days of the draft without being drafted, there are going to be teams that are going to trade up at the beginning of round four to grab him. Because at, at, at round four, that is an incredible value. This is a player who brings an array of skills to the table that no other running back in the draft has. He can run the ball, catch the ball. He's multi-talented, running, receiving, uh, returning. Uh, there's nobody like him at the running back position. So uh, if, he does, if he doesn't make it uh, through the first three rounds, somebody will trade up to steal him at the top of round four. And a team like the Chiefs and other teams that, have, uh, that aren't in the kinds of markets like in New York where it would become very dicey for Joe Mixon, all it takes is one. You don't need all 32 to like him. Yeah, I, I think your point about him coming off the board – for various teams is an interesting one. You know, let's just take the Ravens, for example. They're obviously a team that's not going to pick him. 
Yeah. Uh, you know, based on the Ray Rice thing. Um, and, and when you think about it, you know, how many how many teams in the NFL really need a running back? And, you know, maybe a third of them, maybe a little bit more than that, could think about drafting a running back or would want to take the risk. So when you start pulling teams away like the Giants and the Ravens and, um, you know, like my my hometown Chicago Bear team, like I, they've been on the record that that character is a big thing and they, they took a swing on Ray McDonald a few years ago and, and failed miserably. Um I don't. That's not the type of team that would take him. So there's a handful of teams that have him completely off their board, and then you start seeing how these falls sometimes happen, right? Because there's um, a good percentage of the league has him off the board, and then some of the other teams that may consider taking him don't have a need, and then it becomes an unnecessary risk on their part. Um, and so it'll be fascinating. I'm, I'm, I'll go on the record that he's going to go in the second round at some point. Um, and like you said, I think it's just a talent call. Uh, not saying that I agree with it, but just uh, just how I think it'll happen. I mean, if Christian McCaffrey, who's a terrific running back, is projected to go number eight overall or certainly within the top 10 to 15 picks, Mixon's a better player than him. He just doesn't have as clean of a record, right? Uh, you know, so, so to speak. And uh, I, I just think, well, uh, no, while maybe 32 teams don't need a number one running back, the way the running back position has evolved over the past uh, several years is that you need you need an assembly or you need uh, you, you, there's no more bell cow where you're going to ride Adrian Peterson 30 35 carries a game you need to have uh, you know sort of you know power and ice if you have a if you have a running if you have a power back well you need a, you need another back to complement uh, and, 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 and uh, throw in a different style or a change of pace so uh, so I think every team could use a running back like Joe Mixon, and it just comes down to where in the draft is it safe enough for an NFL team to make the case to its fan base that we had to take them or can justify taking them. Right. Maybe the first round is too high. Maybe even the second round is too high. But in the third round, it becomes much less of a PR issue. And as you pointed out earlier, the first rounders are the press conference picks. Uh, that, that get an, an inordinate amount of attention from the local media. So if he could be buried in, in, the, in the third round or at the top of the fourth round, uh, I, I, be, I think it becomes much less of a PR nightmare. And all of this, in my opinion, underscores uh, just the sheer fallacy of the, of, the, of the way the whole draft is structured, that a player's career you know, is dictated by you know where he may rise or fall, and I think we need a different kind of a system. And we're going to get to that a little bit later because there are there are some draft eligible players uh, who are, are probably being treated more unfairly than somebody like Joe Mixon. Mixon's record speaks for itself, so whether he rises or falls on somebody's draft board is probably on merit. Uh, but I but I do believe I can't see Joe Mixon going undrafted. I'll bet the house that somebody drafts him. Agreed. Agreed. Let's move on to the next one, and this is we're getting kind of getting into the series of the um, ones that have popped up the last few days, and um, you know that always seems to happen every right year. The time of the Unbelievable, yeah. right? Unbelievable. Last year, conveniently, all these leaks and innuendo and the saboteurs, all of this seems to come into play at the 11th hour. Just yeah. ask uh, Laramie Tunsil oh my about that last year. That was that, that I think nothing can top that one. It was the most incredible thing, um, you know, I've ever seen watching the draft and um, just an, an incredible. And he, you know, he didn't fall that much. You know, I want to say he fell about 10 picks. Is that right? Maybe 15, which, Obviously, when you're especially that high in the draft, is millions and millions of dollars. But you know, ended up he in went a, number thirteen, I think, to Miami. Maybe yeah. he was projected to go number one, number two, number three overall. I mean, right. so his drop wasn't as precipitous as Warren Sapp's about twenty years ago. But he did cost him. So that that was probably the most expensive bong mask of all time. Yeah, I can say that. Uh, so the next the next uh, potential draft you want to talk about is. is um, University of Florida defensive tackle Caleb Brantley, and he um, has been projected prior to this incident to being potentially a late-round pick, but probably more of a solid second-round pick. So that's sort of the starting point. Pay attention to where he drops to after this. So um, he was accused of striking a woman, knocking her unconscious, which um, allegedly led to her um, needing a root canal, um, 
According to the, the report, he made crude, tom- crude comments, she pushed him, and he slugged her in the face. So this is, I mean, this is almost dead on Joe Mixon, right? It happened to it at a bar instead of, I believe Joe Mixon was more of like a restaurant. Um, but obviously, Caleb Brantley has a different side of the story. His side of the story was that he wasn't drinking. He was picking up a friend from the bar, and when he walked in, a group of women started basically peppering him with lewd suggestions, and then one of them stepped forward and out of nowhere, punched him in the mouth, and when he responded by trying to push her away, he made contact to her face due to a quote-unquote reflex reaction. Um, so, you know, here obviously we uh, have two very conflicting sides of the story. Um, there's actually two separate police reports. The first police, police report said that the complainant walked away from the scene with her friends while the second said that he knocked her unconscious and she left unconscious. So, I mean, that's a huge difference. There's been a a lot of debate over that aspect of it. Um, You know, the attorney for Brantley came out, uh, I believe, you know, yesterday, maybe the day before, and said that um, the attorneys for the accuser had approached him about a settlement, and he said, no, I I mean, to me, that just strikes me as pure posturing on their part. Um, trying to get in the good graces. Who knows what's going on with that? Um, And and the state's attorney came out and said that he doesn't care about the draft. He won't decide whether Brantley will be charged with the misdemeanor before the draft or not. So this is going to be one of those issues where it's hanging over his head during the draft. Teams don't know. It's pretty recent. This happened, you know, over the last few weeks. Teams haven't really had a chance to dig in, talk to people if they're interested in him get the police reports. I mean, they probably have the ability to do that, but, um, you know, haven't really been able to do as much investigation as something like Joe Mixon. But the bottom line is we have very similar allegations. Now, we may not, uh, and and to my knowledge, we don't have a video. So that's really the difference here. And to you, Dan, does the video matter in a case like this? Because otherwise we're, we're essentially at the same place we are with Mixon. Well, you know, with the uh, Brantley case, um, we'll never have an investigation in time uh, for a team to make a decision. I mean, we know how uh, timely the NFL is in conducting investigations. We're still a year out with Ezekiel Elliott. Um, and, you know, it's almost it's almost like there's a presumption of guilt if any accuser steps forward in the timing of these accusations, especially with Brantley, and that there have been a multitude of different uh, two different police reports which are in conflict with one another. I think a team, uh, you know, teams almost have no choice but to take a pass and it becomes a matter of value drafting. If, if there comes a point in the draft at which it represents a tremendous value to draft him, then some team will draft him. Uh, but this is not fair to the player to have um, you know, these kinds of unresolved allegations. Uh, it's not the, may not even be the player's fault. It may not even be the league's fault. I mean, there are a number of accusers and leakers. This is, this is endemic uh, to the NFL draft. We go through this every year. And it, it really is unfortunate that there's no mechanism by which a player can clear his name in like 72 hours. Now, if there's a, if there if there were settlement negotiations or the or, or the victim's attorney has reached out for settlement within days of the incident, well, that sounds like it's a money grab, and we haven't heard a response. Uh, from any legal representative representing the woman. But this is just more of the same uh, with the NFL draft and how, um, you know, rumors, leaks, accusers, saboteurs, all this seems to happen uh, within the days and weeks leading up to the draft. And it's a hell of a way for somebody's career path to be determined when it may be determined on a falsehood. Yeah, and it's that's certainly a possibility. Uh, you know, it's certainly a possibility that something did happen here too. So I don't want to jump in any conclusions yeah. either direction. But um, you know, I, I mean, I the cash grab thing um, to me, his lawyer coming out and saying that is just uh, purely a PR move. Uh, you know, who knows what the phone call was? They could have yeah. talked and just That's brought true. up the topic. I mean, you, you, you and I have both been on, you know, hundreds of those calls where, uh, those things are talked about and I'm sure the other side's attorney wasn't expecting him to leak that, but he did. And maybe you should have known that instead of calling him. But, uh, in any event, I, I'm not reading too much <laughs> into that. 
But this is irreparable. This is like almost irreparable harm to the player. A player can't prove a negative. And once once these accusations and rumors uh, are hanging out there on the eve of the draft, they become a self-fulfilling prophecy. And whether, whether there's truth to the allegations or it's just a complete uh, uh, you know, money grab, uh, teams are going to back off and the player's draft status is irretrievably affected. And the difference between going in the second and third round to going into the sixth or seventh round is not just guaranteed money, but the guarantee, perhaps even the guarantee of having a job. Because if you're drafted in the top three rounds, uh, you're going to have to really play your way off of a guaranteed roster spot. But if you're drafted a little bit later in the NFL draft, like the sixth or seventh round, teams are less invested in you emotionally. And uh, this could mean the difference between sticking on a roster or you know being waived and being out of the league. Absolutely. And there's a lot to be said about there's the possibility that all these, you know, a lot of these players that we're talking about are extremely talented. You expect them to have on talent alone, long NFL careers, but uh, you know, it's a violent sport. We've seen tons of players have their careers cut short due to injury. Dan, there's a chance that this is the only NFL contract some of these players will ever get. And so if the, if this contract is being wrongfully thwarted to, sending them back multiple rounds, costing them millions of dollars. That's a huge deal in someone's, the grand scheme of their life. So, uh, you know, it's obviously a big deal. Um, you know, we, we, we talked offline about um, some potential thoughts that we had for fixing it. And it's, it's a tough call. I know you had some good ideas. I'm stumped. Um, you know, I, I agree that there, there are some problems, but what, you know. Well, we haven't even gotten to the worst case yet. You know, you and I, uh, in leading off the show, we've spoken about some alleged, uh, you know, uh, alleged assaults and, and sexual assaults, which involve accusations from third parties. There are other players who are being uh, uh, you know, victimized and adversely affected uh, by, by what might be false positive drug tests involving, uh, you, know, you know, water dilution and, you know, excess water in the system uh, that are strictly a function of how the NFL chooses to characterize uh, a player who drinks an excess amount of water. Is it masking the presence of drugs in the system or is a player hydrating as he's supposed to be doing, as my nutritionist tells me all the time I should be doing? Uh, so we're, we're, we're about to get um, into a couple of cases where it, it's maybe the NFL's doing why the player might be slipping down the draft board with Joe Mixon and, and, and Brantley. These are alleged incidents, one of which was caught on videotape, but these are in incidents involving third parties, which call into question potentially the character of the player and the ability of the player to remain on a roster if he might present, uh, you know, re repeat uh, a repeat risk of, uh, of, of you know, of, uh, of, of assault or committing a crime. Uh, so, you know, th this is the beginning of our red flag draft board uh, is focusing on uh, alleged criminal incidents. We're about to get into something that is a little bit more of a kind of a slippery slope, which are these drug tests. Yeah. And before we get there, let's just, just close the gap on the criminal activity. We've got two more and we'll try to make them quick. <laughs> we're only we're not going to have anyone left on our draft board. I know. Um, I'm just keeping with our outline folks. So I, I don't want to jump too far ahead. Um, call me a type a stickler, but you know, um, so anyway, next player, Gary and Conley, Ohio state cornerback was a huge riser in the draft was kind of looked at <coughs> early on in the draft draft process as the second wheel to, Lattimore, the other cornerback at Ohio State, who's you know considered a top five, top ten guy, but um, you know Conley has really rose up the board, and now he's he was at one point considered a potential top ten pick in the draft himself. Um, but then this anonymous report from a Cleveland reporter came out that uh, you know a potential NFL draftee may have been involved in a sexual assault. And, uh, you know, for a few days it went on with a mystery of who this player was, uh, you know, and eventually TMZ broke the news around the same time that uh, Conley announced that he wasn't no longer going to attend the draft, um, which I think may have tipped off some folks as well. Uh, you know, he's accused of sexually assaulting a woman on April 9th in a Cleveland hotel. Uh, there's been no charges filed yet. Um, police are still investigating. So this is another one you know, where we're going to have no resolution come draft day. 
you know, his agent has come out and said that the allegations are completely false. Um, one interesting tidbit that I saw reported, and I have no idea if this is true, but it came from a fairly reputable source, was that only one team in this case has re- requested the police report. So, uh, you know, it, it, who knows if teams are getting it through other sources, but um, it, it seemed a little curious to me that such a you know talented player that I think a lot of teams would like to have are, are not requesting the police report on that. It seemed like the first thing they would do. Um, so, you know, I think this is another case of really brutal timing for Conley. Um, this is one where teams are not going to have a chance to dig in and they're going to have to balance the risk of the unknown versus the benefit of drafting a player with his talent. And it's just hard to see him sticking around in the first round with those questions out there, even though, um, you know, he's come out and denied it. And he's admitted that he put himself in a, in a, in a stupid position being in a hotel room with these people. But at the same time, he said, I didn't do anything wrong at all. This is completely fabricated. Um, so, uh, yeah, that that's a tough one. But, uh, you know, you... you, you we thought we would see him in the first round. So everyone, when you're tuning in, um, you know, tomorrow and Friday, just pay attention to where he drops. And that's, uh, that's the value that that's teams put on these sort of incidents. Yeah. I think, uh, for all you want to be prospective, uh, NFL agents out there, I think what we're seeing here is, uh, no, nothing good comes out of going out to a bar, uh, with a bunch of friends and, 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 you know, spending the weekend before your draft or the second weekend before your draft out at some place. I think players, and I'm being serious here, maybe need to keep a little bit of a lower profile because they're going to be opportunists and people who might, uh, might, might even, you know, um, you know, allege, uh, you know, fall, you know, bring false charges. Uh, players are putting themselves in situations where even if they don't commit any misconduct or commit any crime they're leaving themselves in a position of vulnerability to at least false accusations and you know you know i know an agent can't be uh, sort of his 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 clients around the clock monitor but given that uh, you know given how much is at stake here and 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 how important it is to be drafted as highly as possible in the draft i think i think agents may need to kind of keep tabs on where their players are going and, and at least give, uh, you know, some guidance to their clients as to what kinds of situations where not to go, don't go to bars, kind of keep a low profile in the month leading up to the draft. Absolutely. It's a great point. Uh, it was something I was thinking about earlier too. And, um, yeah, I think teams, even if they don't agree with, you know, they do their research, they don't agree with the allegations, they have to put some stock in a player's judgment and putting himself in those situations. And so that's a sort of a different, uh, you know, different value being put on than necessarily if someone was committing a criminal act, but it's still going to lower their draft stock. So to your point, I think if you're, you're an agent, um, or you're someone close to a player, uh, you know, just the NCAA season ends, just lay low for a few months um, and, and, you know, keep yourself in good position. But then again, you know, it's, uh, you know, these, these are kids still, you know, they're you're young men, I would say, uh, in their low twenties. Um, you know, it's their first time having some, some additional freedom outside the college life. So, um, it's not hard to imagine how those situations sometimes happen. Um, and yeah, so we have one left in this category and that is, uh, from my favorite team. Michigan Wolverines cornerback Jordan Lewis, uh, you know who who draft value at times was noted as a potential first round pick, but probably realistically, especially given the glut of cornerback talent in this draft, would probably fall to the second round. But it would have been a solid second round pick. Um, it, there's been talk now that he could go as far as undrafted, uh, based on what we're going to talk about. And so that's a huge drop. But I, I think. Um, you know, as I'll get to in a minute, but there's some additional factors to be taken to play. And you, you compare him to a guy like Conley, who people generally, you know, regard as more has more talent, is more of a first round pick compared to a second. Um, it'll be interesting to see how much each of them fall. And obviously, they have different allegations and different things going on. But um, based on the starting point of whether it's a first round or a second round pick, um, to see how teams value that, because again, at the end of the day. Um, you know, every team in, the, in their office is, is making the uh, risk versus talent distinction 
in comparison when deciding whether or not to draft these players. But anyway, uh, Lewis was alleged to uh, have gotten in a dispute with his uh, three three year girlfriend. Um, they got into a verbal argument. He allegedly hid in the closet when the conversation became heated because he wanted to stay away from her. Both of them admit that there was physical violence going on, but they have different versions of the fact. You know, she alleges that he dragged her across the living room and held her down by the neck for three seconds. He said that she was basically attacking him and that he may have put his hand on her neck uh, when he was trying to get her off, but he had no intentions to hurt her. He was actually trying to leave the apartment. So, um, you know, we haven't heard much from either side. Lewis did have one tweet, which has since been deleted, but he said, it's sad that someone would want to control you so bad that they would ruin your life over it. So, uh, you know, Lewis um, is obviously well aware of of the consequences of these actions. He, or of these allegations, I should say. He, um, you know, participated in the Michigan's Pro Day. I know a lot of teams came and he talked to them then. Um, You know, so it'll be interesting to see what happens. So the status of the case is is maybe the most interesting. Um, You know, this one's been around for a little while, so teams have had the time to dig in see if they can call out the facts. But this case is going to trial in July um, for a misdemeanor domestic violence charge in Michigan. So, um, you know, this is one that's obviously not going to be resolved. And it's going to be a pretty public event come July. So there's going to be some some planned bad PR on that part. So, um, you know... I think an overarching theme is what will an NFL team do with an upcoming domestic violence trial? And, well, you know, sources around the league have, have already indicated at least three teams have him completely off their draft board. Yeah, but when you get down to uh, later, a little later in the draft, first of all, he plays a, a premium position being a cornerback, um, you know, and, and for a top school coached by, you know, Jim Harbaugh. Um, I, I, I think teams – Teams need multiple cornerbacks, and uh, I think the further you go down the draft with a with a, with a cornerback at that talent level, um, I, I think somebody will eventually draft him again. It becomes a problem when he when he's a first round, second round, third round pick because you're investing a high asset in a player that could have some roster eligibility issues based on the way he conducts himself. Uh, but when you get into the sixth, seventh, fifth round of the draft, I think it becomes uh, uh, less of a risk. And all it takes is one team. Again, we've we got to go through 32 uh, turns of the card and, and, and in a position that is such a premium in the National Football League, the cornerback position with all the spread offenses and the need to have three, four cornerbacks on the field at any, any given time. You know, he's someone that will ultimately get drafted but will, will this impact his draft status of course the nfl if if anything is a, a risk averse league and teams are going to be leery of dra- of spending a high draft pick on somebody that may have character issues or down the road roster eligibility issues now as a general manager i'd be less concerned with how he's behaved in the past than whether it could be indicative of future problems that could affect his ability to remain on an NFL roster. So again, I, I think a team is going to make a, a scouting, dis, like a cost benefit analysis. And if they believe he's worthy of being on an NFL roster and is good enough uh, to be a top cornerback in the league, somebody will invest a draft pick at least later on in the draft on a player of that caliber. Yeah, I agree. And, uh, you know, Lewis isn't a perfect player. Either. He's a little short for the position. He's, an unbelievable cover corner, but he's, you know, I, I think below what NFL teams are looking yeah. for height-wise. So there's those issues as well. That teams are, uh, you know, it's why he's a second-round talent instead of a first-round, regardless of these legal issues. And, um, and was he invited Was he invited to the combine? Uh, I believe so. Um, I'm trying to remember. I, I, I caught a little bit of the combine. I remember if I... So I'm running. I I don't know for sure. Actually, I you know I know. Sorry to put you on the spot. I I know we kind of ran into all these uh, scenarios where some players were disinvited from the combine, even though others accused of similar crimes uh, were invited to the combine. I guess the difference or the common denominator is whether your crime was caught on videotape or not. Yeah. So I want to get your take on this, Dan. What what do you think of that rule? Because to me, on one hand. I get it. They're trying to they're trying to you know penalize players, but on the other hand, 
I think that's one of the few chances that NFL teams have to sit down and talk with players and really be able to, you know, gain their side of the story or gain whether they feel like they're genuinely rehabilitated or remorseful uh, or not. So I, I, I don't know that that's a good policy. What do you think? I agree with you, Dan. I think the opportunity for the players to acquit themselves uh, in one-on-one meetings with coaches and, 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 and the scouting staff of an NFL team is really critical. And this comes across to me as a punitive uh, measure, and it's one that's unequally enforced. Uh, I mean, it, it, it's really applied on a case-by-case basis at the whim of the National Football League. For every Joe Mixon who's disinvited because of a domestic violence or because of a violent incident, there are other players who've had, uh, you know, if not equally bad, at least similarly bad incidents uh, involving, you know, uh, violence towards Towards women, and they've been invited to the combine. I think the ability of the league to use the combine as a carrot or as, as a punitive measure um, really, I, I think, could be um, you know could be attacked as a, a restraint of trade, and it prevent you know the NFL is the only game in town, and if a player cannot shop his wares and uh, interview for a job, you're basically denying a player like that a career opportunity even though he has nowhere else to go. And I, I think the practice um, is, is I, I wouldn't say it's despicable, but the practice is subject to certainly unequal, unequal application. And uh, if the league is interested in getting answers and having, uh, giving players an opportunity to explain their behavior in front of a potentially a hostile audience, if anything, you should invite players, you should invite the best players to the combine and let teams make their own decisions rather than have the NFL play big brother here and decide who belongs and who doesn't. It's sort of anti-competitive, and, and, it, def- and it definitely, uh, in some cases, may actually violate uh, you know, rights of individuals who are not yet part of the collective bargaining process. Yeah, I just Googled it while you were on that passionate rant, which I liked, by the way. Uh, Jordan uh, Lewis did, did attend the Combine. Uh, this year, so you know some of the hypocrisy is showing up on the NFL's end there. Um, but let's let's move along. We you touched uh, or you previewed the diluted drug test results cases that we saw this year. Um, let's talk about another Michigan Wolverine. That's Jabril Peppers, the man without a position uh, who is suffering some from who is suffering from potential draftability issues because no one knows what to make of his position as he is is he a, a safety is he a linebacker this is probably the most diverse uh talented person in the nfl draft at least on the defensive side of the ball and uh, is considered to be flying down the draft board because no one knows where exactly he's going to be best suited in the national football league and uh recently he and um um, uh, one of the linebackers, uh, Reuben Foster on Alabama, were, uh, were, were I guess, flunked, a, uh, flunked a, a drug test at the Combine, not for having drugs in their system, but for having an excess amount of water. Uh, I guess they call that a, a, a positive dilute or, a, or just excess dilution. And the, the assumption that the National Football League makes is if, there's, if there is an excess amount of water uh, you know, in your, I guess, in your blood, that that may be indi- indicative of some kind of a masking agent, or to per- or, or to sort of, uh, um, you, you know, guard against or um, dilute the possibility that there may be drugs in the system. I mean, I don't know if I've explained it well, but this is not a positive drug test per se, but it's an excess amount of water, which in the, which in the league's eyes raises red flags. So now, so, so now, Reuben Foster and Cornelius. I'm sorry, Reuben Foster and Jabril Peppers have a have a, a drug testing issue in addition to the other issues which they're facing that affect their draftability. I mean, in, in Foster's case, he had an incident at the combine where he got into an altercation with a hospital worker and was sent home early. And in Foster's case, he I'm sorry, in Pepper's case, he has issues regarding suitability for what his best position is and now has the stigma of of failing an NFL drug test. Yeah, and so just so everyone knows that neither Foster or Peppers will be suspended for that, but they do enter stage one of the substance abuse program for the NFL, which um, kind of moves them up the uh, you know three strikes you're out sort of test, um, and he'll be there for 90 days. They'll both be there for 90 days unless they fail another test. 
if he fails another test, he is eligible to be suspended. Uh, mm-hmm. So it's yeah, it's big. I mean, as I mentioned, I'm a Michigan fan, and I I I disagree with your distinction. Well, I don't. I mean, I don't think you're saying that he doesn't have a position, but it, I think he's a very good football player, and the teams are going to find him a position. He's an excellent return man. He can play off. I mean, mm-hmm. the guy's incredible. Um, I would got, love to. See, I'm, a, I'm a Giants fan. I would love to see the Giants draft him in the first round, figure out where he belongs, you know, afterwards. But I think the players bear some response, or the agents bear some responsibility here. Because what have we heard in the aftermath of these, uh, of these, you know, dilute uh, positive tests? In in both cases, the agents for for each player. Uh, you know, made statements to the effect that they were cramping, or in one case, I think Foster had some level of food poisoning, and, or, or in Pepper's case, he was sick and had to overhydrate. And the question, or, or, or it begs the question, why are the agents uh, coming up with these alibis now? If the situation was so urgent that the player had to drink an excess amount of water, shouldn't the burden have been on each of their agents to notify the NFL at that time? Before there was a test that, listen, my player is cramping, is drinking an excess amount of water. I want you to know this right now. It's almost like covering their asses uh, to give the NFL a heads up that there may be a problem uh, given the excess amount of water that the players have consumed. Rather than try to, I wouldn't say fabricate, but to, to, to offer this excuse post hoc, you know, a week, you know, a month. More than a month later, it raises questions as to the as to the veracity of that kind of a, of, a, of of an excuse. I think the, the I think the agents, if they if if the situation were legitimate and the players really had these cramping problems, the the the, the agents should have notified the NFL from second one rather than after a positive drug test. Yeah, I wonder if there's other ways that agents could deal with this too, from some you know less from an NFL angle, more from a PR angle. I mean, if they if one of those situations comes up and those excuses are genuine that they're overhydrating and that that's what led to him. I mean, Peppers, I believe said he had the flu has always had cramping issues. He actually participated in, in, mm-hmm. in two days of the, or multiple days of the NFL combine because he tested in the linebacker group and the secondary group. So he was going to be doing more than the average player would. But I mean, I wonder if there's other things that agents could do such as like if they think they failed a test or they did go get them a drug test immediately and publish those results. Um, if it's clean, obviously. Uh, and that may alleviate some of the team's concerns when it comes to their, them calculating that into the, to the draft risk. But, you know, at the end of the day, um, I think some of this stuff is, is less of a concern is less of a PR battle. And it's more of a, um, an investigative issue for NFL teams. And I think we'll get to that with one player later, but, um, you know, we'll see. The NFL just has these really, really tough penalties on recreational drugs. And, uh, you know, we've seen numerous players over the past few years who have clearly have drug problems be suspended for extended periods of time. You look at a guy like Josh Gordon, who has barely played football the last three or four years. He's a huge talent, but can't see on the field because the NFL keeps suspending him. Martavius Bryant. Uh, Randy Gregory, all these guys who have been suspended for a year due to recreational drug problems um, is a real issue. So teams are, are, are looking at this and saying, man, is there is there the possibility that one of these guys has those issues and they have to kind of factor that in to where they draft them and, and um, you know, where the value is for that player? Yeah, I mean, you just named the all sensimilia um, NFL team right there, and part of it is, you know, the league's, um, um, I guess, antiquated views towards marijuana. I mean, so many of the players whose names you ticked off um, are not serial drug abusers they're dealing with or or ingesting a recreational drug that's legal in many jurisdictions and is slowly becoming even more legal across the country as states begin to decriminalize uh you know recreational marijuana and you know once players like that get get you know one strike on their record and and have to reapply for admission it's almost as if they never recover they're they're like off kilter for the rest of their careers i mean josh gordon as recently as you know three years ago was probably the most feared or four years ago, the most feared wide receiver in football. Now his career is toast. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we just saw another one last, I mentioned Martavius Bryant. He just got a little tangent. He got 
reinstated this week with some conditions and um you know i i followed those those stories pretty closely in their suspensions and um it's a very once you get suspended for a year it's a very strict standard for you to get reinstated you have to be essentially clean Mm-hmm. For the entire year, you have to have the NFL's doctors essentially vouch for you mm-hmm. to Roger Goodell, and then you have to get Roger Goodell to act on your application, which we've seen take longer, much longer than a year, because he has the discretion to to get to it when he wants to, and he's been been known yeah. to, you know, take longer than a year, even though the year is up, the application is in, the application for reinstatement's in, they're waiting around, and he's just sitting on it. So, um, you know, it's just not a position that as a team you want one of your star players or someone that you're investing a high draft pick to be in. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a whole trickle-down theory here in that once a player uh, you know, gets a, um, a, a suspension or removal from, from the game, um, their careers never quite recover because, one, if you're losing a year or more of football, you're not only losing a year of pay, you're losing a year of competitive uh, you know, play against your peers and um, relative to other players in the league, you're falling behind. And of course, another uh, another repercussion of missing a year and falling behind with your peers is uh, it's doubtful any team will ever invest a long term contract in a player that is, you know, one strike away from a season long suspension. Uh, the ability to get a, a signing bonus of any significant size out the window. And these players are now basically going year to year based upon, you know, having, uh, you know, been having been suspended and missed significant time the first time around. So it's almost like their careers never get back on track. Yeah, absolutely. So I think maybe uh, unless you have anything else here, Dan, we should move away from the dilute drug test results and move on to, uh, move away from the draft entirely and come up with something better than the draft. You know, what we're, what we're seeing here are the vagaries of, you know, last minute rumors, leaks, accusations, basically affecting the livelihood of so many different players in ways that may be unfair. Absolutely. And, and we kind of touched on this a minute ago, but um, yeah. <laughs> it, it's hard to come up with a system that places talent coming into the league fairly without having a draft. I mean, if you just had a pool of money and teams could sign whoever they want, teams would, or, you know, players would automatically gravitate towards good teams, big markets. Um, and those other teams would be kind of, uh, left out. Well, I think you and I off air were talking about a concept of, you know, maybe, uh, teams could, uh, maybe players could be drafted more than once a player like Joe Mixon, uh, could be drafted by as many as four or five teams. There have to be there has to be a way uh, to um, allow uh, teams to take risks like these and allow players um, that are certainly worthy of being on an NFL team multiple suitors to choose among. I mean, there's a there has to be a system that works here that's that that doesn't place the um, you know entire short term future of a player dependent upon where the wheel stops for them with one draft pick. And I'm not saying we need to uh, eschew the draft and, and, and chuck the draft away, but I think the draft system does need to be tweaked uh, to avoid these kinds of um, situations where teams that are in a league that's so risk-averse, uh, one draft pick, one first-round draft pick becomes such an important piece of currency that teams may be reluctant to take risks on players. And I think if you can increase the number of times a player can be picked or the number of teams that can pick him, you might uh, you, you might be able to militate or mitigate rather mitigate some of the you know extreme downside risks that are that are, that are taken here uh, through factors that may not be the player's fault. Absolutely, and I think you know something we haven't really touched on yet is that I don't see this getting any better in years to come, right? I mean, these issues keep coming up right before the draft. There keep coming allegations, and in the age of social media, which is only going to get more involved in players' lives, these players are only going to be um, you know held out as celebrities leading up to the draft more and more moving forward, and their lives are going to be so much more public. Um, it's hard to see an end in sight to to kind of the trend that we've run into these last few years, and I don't know that uh, you're um, 
creative draft idea is the right one, but I think it might be. I don't know. I'm not saying it's not either, Dan. But well, I just um, made it up. I just I made it up. I need, more, I need more than like three minutes to come up with an effective solution. What? Scientists, smarter people than I, have been trying to devise a way to improve the NBA lottery, the NBA draft, the NFL draft. The so far, so so yeah, the wheel. So far, we have the dumbest system possible in each of the sports, and there has to be uh, there has to be some. I wouldn't say a middle ground, but there has to be something below what I consider the lowest form of player um, you know selection, and, and there there have to be there has to be some kind of a tweak because every year. We're going to see, and we haven't even gotten into the Wonderlick, uh, you know, leaks. That's a rite of passage. Every April, we find out about the six or seven players who grade out in, in an embarrassingly low way in an effort to maybe undermine the draft position of certain players. And, um, you know, every, every year we have this gamesmanship. I don't know whether it's rival agents doing it, saboteurs teams hoping to you know send a player down the draft board so that maybe that particular team could draft them in a later round and this is all gamesmanship and manipulation engaged in to the detriment of only one class of 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 of, of, of individuals and those are the players and uh, ultimately i i think one year we're gonna have, we should have a lawsuit over these wonderlick scores because it's almost tantamount to a player's, I wouldn't call it, it's not medical information, but it's certainly private information that shouldn't be leaked, shouldn't be disclosed, shouldn't be given to members of the media. And it happens year after year without any repercussions. And I hope I hope the Players Association uh, does something about this or some players band together and file suit against the NFL and any of the teams for releasing their Wonderlick scores. Yeah, and I wonder, uh, and I don't know the answer to this, and this is very off cuff, but I wonder if it there's an argument that it could be classified as medical data. I mean, I, my understanding of the Wonderlick test is that a psychologist is one of the people there to give the test. Um, it's a test of brain power. Um, I, I don't know. I, I think there there may be an argument there. I mean, I don't know that sure. it would rise to the level of something protected by uh, uh, HIPAA or something like that, but, I, you know, I think... Well, it's not. It's not. It doesn't rise to the level of an X-ray of a mangled hand from shooting off a firecracker. But you know, it, it, certainly, if a player, uh, you know, can sue ESPN, Adam Schefter, uh, for an invasion of privacy, and there might be First Amendment defenses there, I don't think the NFL or the teams have any First Amendment defense. I'm not talking about going after writers who release the scores. I'm talking about suing the National Football League because those scores would never get in the hands of someone like a Darren Ravel or the writer from the Milwaukee Sentinel unless a member or an agent of the league or one of the teams gave that information to the journalists. So I think the first line of attack uh, would be filing an invasion of privacy claim against, uh, you know, against the National Football League. And if I was an agent representing players, I would ins- I don't know what level of confidentiality is guaranteed, whether the league is required to sign an agreement. But if I was a player or if I was representing a, a potential high pick, I wouldn't let him. I wouldn't want him to, you know, uh, to, to, to take the Wonderlick test unless he was able to get an ironclad guarantee in writing that the NFL and all of the teams who have to be signatories agree to maintain the confidentiality of those records because if you get an agreement like that and the scores do get leaked, you have a much stronger... I don't think you need an agreement to have a claim for an invasion of privacy, but I would insist on maximum contractual protections. It's a good point, and I really do think that uh, you know the, the only people with things to lose during this process are the players themselves, but... I mean, I think you just outlined one potential way for them to fight back. And, and uh, Michael McCann, uh, sports law writer, lawyer, professor, wrote an interesting article I've never, today. I've never, heard, I've never heard of that guy. Who is he? Uh, wrote an interesting article today on Dalvin Cook and some potential, uh, another way for players to potentially get back. And so taking a step back, Dalvin Cook, who's had some legal trouble over the years in, in addition to what's going on right now. He's allegedly punched a woman in the face outside of a Miami bar in 2015, ultimately was acquitted by a jury in that count, um, and was cited for mistreating animals in 2014 as well. Um, so it has a little bit of background, but uh, the McCann article and, and 
I don't think he was actually the, he talked about the legal issues. He wasn't the one that un- uncovered these factual issues. I, I can't remember the source, and I'm sorry about that. But um, identified a saboteur um, who was allegedly uh, an NFL agent's runner, who someone works for an NFL agent to help sign clients, gather information, um, and they this runner who apparently has NFL team connections is apparently spreading the rumors that. Cook has a history of showing up late for workouts, um, comes to practice. With alcohol on his breath. With alcohol on his breath. Right. I love that. Comes yeah. to practice with a breath smelling of alcohol and is, quote unquote, associated with bad people. So, um, you know, really dragging him through the mud, if you will, and trying to sabotage, for lack of a better word, his draft stock. And so McCann made an interesting uh, legal argument that. Um, Cook may have a defamation claim against the NFL agent and, and or the, the runner himself. And, uh, you know, it, it's it's an interesting claim. And, and I think one part of this, and we've seen this before, you know, I wrote an article about Tabo Cephalosha, about his value in free agency and how that could be used in a damages claim um, with his retaliation lawsuits and NYPD, which he ultimately just settled for millions and millions of dollars recently. But... You look at the damages here, even from going from pick 20 to 35. So Cook was widely regarded as a first-round talent, Florida State running back, obviously. Um, you know, in this in this running back class has been, you know, we said it before with Mixon but, and Fournette, but Cook has been said to be the best running back in this class as well, at least in the eyes of some. Um, you know, so let's just say mid-first-round talent, 20th pick, Seems like a fair spot for just his talent. Um, you push him back just 15, 15 spots to 35 into the early second round, and that costs him $5 million. Um, and so that's, a, that's, that's the damages calculation in the lawsuit. Now, is he going to be able to prove that this, these rumors alone were the cause of dropping 15 spots? That's really the problem. You know, He's obviously had these other issues. There's other health concerns with Cook as well. Uh, you know, teams are not going to want to go on the record and say, oh, yeah, this guy was telling us this, this is why we didn't draft him. You know, they're going to say, well, there's all these factors that play into it, and who knows where they would have drafted him. So, you know, that's something that maybe, you know, they get a uh, some sort of expert to come in there and testify, but it's uh, would be a difficult determination, I would imagine. Um, what did you think about McCann's argument about a, a potential defamation claim? Well, I, I think the um, you know it, it's it's certainly unique, but it really targets the saboteur who, who you know may be a judgment-proof individual. Uh, you know, runners you know might work for more than you know the you know more than one particular agent. It really places the focus on the activity of, of, of unscrupulous agents rather than target what I think is the real, you know, problem with the NFL draft. And it's the, you know, leaks that come from the teams and the league themselves. Uh, so it is, it is a very interesting theory. Uh, but, uh, I'm, I'm more, I, I'd be more concerned about, uh, you know, trying to, you know, trying to, trying to close up, um, the, I, I guess the, the loopholes or the, or the flaws in the NFL's drafting system. And certainly if a player like Cook slips 15 spots to 20 spots, you, you know, somebody's going to be able to make, you can be, you can prove it circumstantially that a player like that, uh, was certainly worthy of a mid first round pick a player like cook slipping to the second round uh, i don't think you're going to need teams to testify that they would have drafted him at 16 17 or 18 when the player's record and and, and measurables compared to those selected ahead of him at the same position you know tell the story uh i'd like to see the draft overhauled and i think the problem um, lies not in the behavior of unscrupulous agents, although that does need to be, that's probably a, a, a secondary argument for overhauling the draft because you can have all this manipulation and rumors and, and uh, uh, you know, false stories put out there to affect somebody's career. Uh, so there needs to be a, better, a more effective way of allocating amateur talent among the NFL teams in an equitable way that doesn't have the whole thing rise or fall on a particular rumor of the day. Yeah, I agree. And um, we'll come by our next by, by our second anniversary podcast. We'll come up with a better system. Okay, uh, we have a whole year to think about it. Yeah, I can guarantee <laughs> you 
that this is going to recur year after year. There's no such thing. There's there are no new cases, just new faces. Uh, this year's D- Dalvin Cook, there'll be another one just like him. There'll be there'll be Wonderlick scores released in 2018 that attempt to embarrass you know a, a number of different players. We see this year after year. The story remains the same, and the system never changes. I agree. Um, and, and on a red flag, big boy, we're, we're to our final player, and we'll make this a quick one because we're completely out of time. But um, that is Alabama defensive end Tim Williams. Uh, Williams, who was widely regarded at least coming into the draft, he had a, sort of a subpar combine uh, and measurables, and then also this other stuff we're going to get to. Um, you know, as a first round talent, yeah, you know. Very, very good defensive player and the best defense in college football last year at Alabama. Um, and and this, his case is really one that, that goes to what I was talking about earlier, about the NFL's um, very strict penalties for players who get caught using recreational drugs. And he, during the process, admitted to failing numerous drug tests at Alabama. He was also arrested for carrying a gun without a permit. Um, and if you look at those two things you know he one of them was actually a crime one of them was not but i think teams are more concerned about the one that's not a crime here um and that's the the potential suspension issue for a guy like tim williams who um you know uh was teams rumored to compare him to randy gregory who that's not someone you want to be compared to this time of year because um you know he's someone that who has been suspended by the nfl um so another one to keep an eye on, and uh, I think just sort of overall with our Red Flag Big Board, we have these eight players. Uh, I know many of you are going to uh, watch the draft over the next few days, um, if not just follow the draft results, but really keep an eye on these eight players. Think about where they were projected. We talked about that with all of them, and, and look where they end up, and then put your eyes in, in or you know, put yourself in position of the GMs and the, the team execs and the presidents and the people having to deal with the PR uh, about why that player fell to where they were, and it'll really show you where NFL priorities lie. What do you think, Dan? Yeah, I, I agree, but I'll tell you what. If I had um, an, an eight-player draft that consisted of Reuben Foster, Jabril Peppers, Dalvin Cook, Joe Mixon, Tim Williams, Jordan Lewis, I'd come away thinking I had the best draft in the NFL. Uh, so you're talking about players that are going to be picked somewhere, most of whom are going to make the NFL, and, and teams are going to be sorry. Most teams are going to be sorry when they passed on, on players with the talent of a mixing or a cook. I think, I, I think these players get pushed down maybe a round or two, uh, but, man, I'd love, to have, I'd love to have half of those players if I, if I were picking for the New York Giants or whatever team that I'm picking for. Uh, and it's unfortunate because these are, these are uh, special players who are among the best at their positions, and now their career is, is starting off on, a, on the wrong foot, potentially costing them millions of dollars apiece. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, we've seen different different – Teams take different stances, and now we've seen different podcast hosts take different yeah. stances on drafting uh, players with sort of questionable pass. And, um, you know, uh, I, I think there's other players out there that that maybe have less risk. Uh, I, I think in the, if you look in the past at players with a lot of these red flags, some of them work out great or clean, become model citizens. Other ones don't. So it's just a risk that they have to weigh out. Um, but at the and end of the Dan, day, Dan, uh, and Dan, I hate, I hate to say it and I hate to end on a controversial note. Oh boy. Every one of these players shares one characteristic, all of whom are African American, all, all of them. Uh, you know, we heard nothing about players like Chip Kelly, right? Jim Kelly's, uh, you know, nephew who was a quarterback at Ole Miss, um, he's probably the only Chip. one. Chip Kelly is the coach. It's uh, what's his name? It's a different first name, but yeah, go on. Yeah, continue. Yeah, and and again, we see this year after year, and uh, it, you know, just it, it strikes me that every single one of these players is African American, um, and we don't hear anywhere near the same kind of attention played uh, displayed to players uh, who are white, 
who may have had a checkered past. Look at one in one in particular. You have, I think it's, it might be Garrett Bowles or one of the offensive linemen that had a checkered uh, past and some difficulties growing up and, and took a while to get his act on the straight and narrow. Um, his draftability has not suffered one bit. And this is the untold story, the, uh, the something that is it's always going to be pushed you know, under the rug and only talked about in very uh, narrow quarters of, of, of the media. Uh, but I, I think there's also a, 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 a racial component to this. No one will ever talk to it, but it, it just the, 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 you know, the statistic of who we're talking about and the sheer number of it and always pointing to one segment, one racial segment. And, uh, you know, it's you know, we can't we can't always have just Sean King. Uh, raising issues like this, but it does strike me as a, uh, a, a as something that you know just stands out to me year after year. Yeah, it's an interesting point. Uh, Chad Kelly, by the way, Chad Kelly. I was um, off. By, I was off by two letters. Was Chip Chad? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think you know a guy like Johnny Manziel is one that comes comes to mind i don't think that and he his... was drafted he was drafted in the first round no i'm, I'm i agree i'm, yeah. I'm saying yeah. it, it affirms your argument that um you know uh he was drafted I, I think he may have slowed a little bit um but i also think that it had to do a lot with sort of his size and sort of his yeah. unusual playing style as much as anything and he obviously you know had had some red flags leading up to the draft that wouldn't push a player maybe so far. I don't know. I, I think it's a it's an interesting topic. I don't think I'm educated enough to talk about it. I do totally uh, agree with your point that we're talking about eight players and eight African American players. So um, something to keep an eye on moving forward. Yeah, we we saved the controversial for the last. Uh... Hopefully uh, enough people stuck stuck around to listen yeah. to the entirety of the podcast because it's our first uh, first draft special and I think we covered a lot of terrain here today and I'll be interested to see where each of these players uh, you know lines up uh, you know on Thursday night. Absolutely. Well, Dan, uh, enjoy your draft. Good luck to your Giants. Hopefully, my Bears uh, will, will make the right move at number three. I'm pulling for Deshaun Watson, uh, QB Clemson. I know that's a little bit of an upset pick, but um, hoping um, we solve the QB problem this year. I'm a I'm a Giants fan. I hope you get your wish, Dan. I'm a I'm a Giants fan. I'm pulling for uh for it to be any position other than offensive line, preferably a running back. I'd like to see. I, I know I, I I favorably compare Joe Mixon to uh, Christian McCaffrey, but I would love to see Christian McCaffrey on the Giants. And if not McCaffrey, I would like to see uh, you know Mixon end up a New York Giant, but it is not going to happen. Yeah, so, unlikely on that front. So, yeah. Arden, thank you. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Uh, do us a favor. Go give us a uh, rating, review on iTunes. And uh, until next time, enjoy your NFL draft.